0: Good evening, and welcome to the Critical Leffler Family History Podcast. I, Tom Leffler, will be your host tonight, so please take a moment to get comfortable. Tonight, I will be sharing my family's story of when and how my ancestors first came to the United States, as well as how white supremacy and privilege have made it possible for my family and countless others to profit and flourish off of the stolen indigenous land. I will also be telling the histories and misfortunes of the indigenous people whose land and lives were taken from them so that the colonizers could advance their civilization. The first generation to arrive in the United States. The first documented family history on my father's side begins with my great -great great-grandfather William C. Leffler. He was born January 20th, 1847 in Staffeld, Germany. Stauffeld is found in the region of Brandenburg and is a town in Germany located 67 miles northeast of Berlin, the country's capital city. He lived in this region until he was 16. Then in 1863, while the United States was two years into the Civil War, he decided to set sail from Germany To avoid mandatory military service and to seek opportunities for work and land ownership. Land was much harder to come by in Europe. During the 1800s, German immigration to the United States increased significantly. Roughly 90 percent of German immigrants decided to settle in the United States. Many of them wrote home to tell their families back in Germany about the variety of opportunities available to them in the United States. The word spread like wildfire and Germans left for the States in droves. From 1800 to 1830, around 10,000 Germans had made the trek across the Atlantic. And by 1854, the number of German immigrants totaled nearly 200,000. The working class in Germany at the time was being subject to poor treatment and many of them had had their land seized by the government. Unemployment was on the rise, and repercussions from the failed German Revolution of 1848 drove many Germans to leave their homeland. By the end of the century, just over 5 million Germans had immigrated to the United States, and my ancestors were part of this mass exodus. My great-great-grandfather arrived to the United States in 1863, which was a very opportune time for white settlers. After landing on the East Coast at an unknown destination, he set out west on the railroad. His first known destination was in Wisconsin, where he lived from 1863 to 1885. He initially worked on the railroads, and after a few years, he was hired on as a firefighter. While well, in Wisconsin, he met my great-great-grandmother, Wilhelmine Wilkie. She was also born in Germany on July 5, 1855, in a town called Pommern. Unfortunately, we do not know how or when she arrived in the United States. Most family histories are structured from a patriarchal perspective. Much of the focus is on the men of the family. My great-great-grandparents were married in 1878 in, in, in Wisconsin, where they stayed for seven years. Then in 1885, they moved to Hendricks, Minnesota, where they purchased 160 acres of land to farm and to live on. This first piece of land that was sold to him by the United States government would not cost him very much. According to a 2003 historic Minnesota farm study, in 1860, the going rate was $1.25 per acre, and the maximum a single family could purchase at the time was 160 acres. The Minnesota Commissioner of Statistics, J.W. McClung, in 1860, estimated that it cost $795, roughly $18,000 in today's money to open a farm, including the price of implements, provisions, oxen, cows, a team and wagon, breaking about 20 acres of land as well as building a house with a fence. The land they purchased had been stolen by the United States government from the Dakota people. Here's a brief history and background information about the Dakota people. The Dakota Nation at this time were comprised of four distinct groups of people who lived in present-day Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Nebraska, and up into Canada. Minnesota is referred to as the birthplace of the Dakota people, according to their creation stories. The Dakota people moved about this land depending on the season so that they could utilize the many natural resources available to them. During the harsh winters, they could stay in their winter villages and survive off of their stores of supplies That were collected during the previous year. They would also continue to hunt and fish when feasible during the winter months. In the spring, men left on hunting parties while the women, children, and the elderly headed to sugaring camps where they produced maple sugar and syrup. Then in the summer, they gathered into villages to hunt and fish. They spent a lot of time processing game, harvesting traditional medicines and indigenous plants, They grew crops of corn, squash, and beans. Then in the fall, they all gathered for the annual hunt and began preparations for the upcoming winter. Their culture and society were based off of communal support and a strong connection to the land and its natural resources. Kinship formed the basis for traditional Dakota society. Dakota kinship created an extensive social and communal structure that extended across the Dakota nation, ensuring that no matter the village or community visited, a Dakota would likely find a relative. Newcomers could be welcomed into Dakota communities through ritualized ceremonies where the obligations of kinship were taught to the individuals involved. Community governance was accomplished through consensus with all concerned parties being able to speak and be heard. European and European-American fur traders, and later the U.S. government, would utilize and sometimes exploit these kinship networks to foster trade and establish political relationships with the Dakota communities in the region during the 1800s. In the 1800s, daily life for the Dakota centered on survival. A harsh climate... Tenuous food sources and potential conflict with neighbors made it essential for Dakota communities to work together at such tasks as hunting and gathering food, cultivating crops, processing animal skins for clothing and shelter, and providing for communal defense. Learning about the Dakota people reminded me of one of our course readings, Maple Nation, A Citizenship Guide. In this piece, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about how her people's land, and specifically the maple trees found on it, provide a variety of life-sustaining elements. Firewood, maple sugar, and syrup, shade, protection from harsh weather conditions, just to list a few. She also highlights how the people of Maple Nation work together to do their part to maintain the trees so that they both may continue to exist in this symbiotic relationship. Indigenous people of this country, including the Dakota people, had a deep respect for the land they occupied, and for them, their culture and survival depended on living in harmony with nature. When the Dakota were forced from their homelands, the colonizers not only took their land, but they also were stealing their culture, identities, and basically their entire way of life. I will now tell the story of how the Dakota people lost their sacred land to the colonizers and how this tragic event for the Dakota people led to a new available land for my ancestors and thousands of other settlers. Sadly, the Dakota people who had lived on this land for hundreds, if not thousands of years, were forced off of it and some chose to stay and fight for it. The Dakota people decided to stay and defend their land would inevitably pay the ultimate price trying to remain on their ancestral homelands. One year prior to Williams' arrival in 1862, the United States waged war with the Dakota Nation who had been involved in skirmishes with the ever-intruding colonizers. The Dakota Nation at the time was attempting to stop people from homesteading on their land and many of the settlers would not take no for an answer. So after a few bloody encounters between the Dakota people and the encroaching settlers, the United States government decided to get involved. The effects of the war were tragic for the Dakota people and they could still be felt today. Fort Snelling played a major role in the war and its aftermath. In early August, 1862, recruitment of the 6th through 11th Infantry Regiments that were ready to serve in the Civil War were called to fight against the Dakota Nation. When news of the Dakota attacks reached St. Paul, Governor Ramsey appointed Henry Sibley, a colonel in the state's military forces and commander of the army that would march against the Dakota. Sibley led four heavily armed companies of the 6th Infantry Regiment from Fort Snelling to St. Peter. And over the next few days, additional supplies and detachments from other partially recruited infantry regiments and militia units left Fort Snelling to join Sibley and his men. Then on September 16th, Major General John Pope took federal control of the state's military forces, assuming command of the newly created Military Department of the Northwest. Sibley was then named a General of the US Army Volunteers he commanded the U.S. forces during the decisive battle of Wood Lake on September 23rd. On this day, the Dakota were defeated. The majority of the Dakota combatants moved westward, deeper into Dakota territory, while others fled to Canada. But many of the men who had fought stayed with their families since they were, since they were unable to flee in time. The remaining Dakota, who had not participated in the war, as well as some who had met Sibley's armies at a place that came to be called Camp Release. When Sibley arrived, he placed the Dakota under arrest, claiming that they were now in the custody of the United States military. And over the following three weeks, a military commission tried 392 Dakota men for their participation in the war and sentenced 303 of them to death. Some of the defendants were only allowed five minutes <coughs> in front of the court to plead their cases. During this time and ever since, the legal authority of the commission and the procedures it followed have been heavily scrutinized. After the trials, General Pope ordered that the Dakota who were found guilty be sent to Mankato, and the Dakota people who were not directly involved in the war be sent to Fort Snelling. Sibley assigned Lieutenant Colonel William R. Marshall and his 300 men of the Minnesota Infantry in charge of the forced removal of the Dakota from Minnesota River Valley to Fort Snelling. There were 1,658 Dakota who traveled to Fort Snelling beginning on November 7th, 1862, and the majority of them were children, women, and elderly. The Fort Snelling Concentration Camp. The Dakota arrived at Fort Snelling, which was in the process of being converted into a concentration camp on November 13th, 1862, and were held on a bluff of the Minnesota River about a mile west of the fort. Soon after, Marshall and his soldiers relocated the Dakota to the river bottom directly below the fort. In December, Marshall's men finished building the concentration camp a large wooden fence which stood about 12 feet high encased an area of three acres near the river bottom. The 1,658 Dakota people were then moved inside the encampment, and the army turned an old warehouse located just outside the camp into a hospital and mission station. (coughs) Over the course of the camp's existence, soldiers of the 6th 7th and 10th Minnesota Volunteer Infantry Regiments guarded the concentration camp and made sure that no one moved in or out of the camp without their approval. That winter, somewhere between 130 and 300 Dakota people died, mainly due to measles, other diseases, and harsh conditions. The camp was utilized by the United States government as a means to carry out its genocidal policies pursued against indigenous people. Military servicemen and settlers were responsible for many heinous acts, which included hunting down and killing Dakota people. They would also abuse them physically and mentally. They imprisoned them and tried to force them to give up their culture and language as a way to stop them from being Dakota. Then on February 16th, 1863, Congress passed an act that abolished any treaties that had been negotiated with the Dakota people. The act also stated that all lands held by the Dakota and all annuities due to them would be forfeited to the U.S. government. A second bill providing for the removal of the Dakota from their ancestral homelands passed on March 3, 1863. There was a strong desire of the colonists to remove all indigenous people from Minnesota, including those who had remained peaceful during the war, since many of them had resided on prime agricultural land that colonists wished to obtain. That May, the army put the remaining Dakota captives from Fort Snelling concentration camp and sent them to a desolate reservation at Crow Crow Creek, Dakota territory. Of the Dakota people who survived the extermination policies following the war, some were able to stay in their homelands of the Minnesota region. Most were forced out of the state. Today, Minnesota continues to be sacred land to the Dakota people, and tribal members continue to return and seek acknowledgement, as well as participation in decisions that are made about the places of historic and cultural significance to their communities. Today, the continuation of the Dakota community's culture in connection to Minnesota highlight the great resiliency of the Dakota people. <coughs> it is extremely upsetting to come to the realization that my family and I have directly benefited from the stolen land of the Dakota people. If the land was never stolen from them after the U.S. Dakota War of 1862 then my great-great-grandparents would not have been able to purchase their 160 acres. The farmland enabled my relatives to grow their wealth by owning land and over time, watching it increase in value. The land also gave them the natural resources and space needed to provide for their family and to sell their excess crops and products to the local community, which in turn helped to increase their wealth. It's absolutely shocking and devastating to learn about how inhumane we the colonizers have treated the indigenous people of this land. I've never studied these incidents in such great detail before, and it is a bit overwhelming to realize how my relatives' opportunities are directly tied to the demise of innocent people and their stolen land. Sensoy and D'Angelo accurately describe some of my feelings and difficulties I've experienced while engaging in the social justice course. And especially this assignment, they mentioned in the first chapter of their book that because social justice courses directly address emotionally and politically charged issues, they can be upsetting. For many of us, this is the first time we have experienced a sustained examination of inequality, especially when we are in the dominant groups. Although the frameworks used in these courses do not claim that people in dominant groups are bad, many of us hear it that way because our current sense-making framework says that participation in inequality is something that only bad people do. Until we have a critical social justice framework, which requires a whole new paradigm of sense-making, we often find it difficult to remain open, especially if we are a member of the dominant group under study. Defensiveness, cognitive dissonance, and even feelings of guilt, shame, and grief are not uncommon. In some ways, these kinds of feelings indicate movement and change, and although unpleasant, they are not necessarily problematic. The key to whether these feelings play a constructive or destructive role lies in what we do with them. I feel as though this passage was written specifically for me. I have always been part of dominant groups throughout my lifetime. For much of my life, I've been oblivious to the privileges that have benefited me. I was aware that by being a white straight man from a middle-class family was advantageous in many ways, but I was not aware of all the horrific details of how these advantages came to be. Until now, I have not done a critical investigation into the ways our societal structure benefits people like me. Prior to this course and assignment, I had learned about some of the struggles that marginalized groups have had to face, but I have never taken the time to dig deep into the specific accounts and experiences of the victims of white supremacy and con- colonialism. It is truly and utterly fucked up that and heartbreaking to learn about these accounts. No human being, especially not innocent humans, should be forced to suffer and be subject to the abuse, exploitation, and murder that many marginalized groups have been forced to endure throughout our country's history. And I do feel guilty now, knowing that many of my good fortunes have come at the expense of other less fortunate people. (coughs) Their losses were my family's gains. Second generation in the United States. My great-grandfather, Otto Leffler, was born June 17, 1889, in Hendricks, Minnesota, the town he would spend his first 16 years in. He was the fourth child born to a family of six children, who all were initially raised on the 160-acre farm in in Minnesota. The children helped with daily operations and chores on the farm. Then in 1905, the Leffler family decided to sell the farm and move further west to Fairfield, Washington. They purchased farmland there, which had several different buildings on it. The new farm allowed them to remain self-sufficient, raising a variety of animals and growing crops. My great-grandfather, Otto, became increasingly more interested in running the ever-evolving farm equipment and also enjoyed repairing it as well. So after graduating high school, he enrolled in a traction engineering course where he honed his skills for (coughs) building and repairing farm equipment. He saved his money for a couple of years and eventually purchased a thrashing machine that was designed to process different types of grain. Many of the local farmers did not have this type of equipment on hand, so they would hire Otto and his crew to come out during the harvest to help them process. The different crops using his thrashing machine. My great-grandfather was a hard worker and opportunistic, but he was also privileged in many ways. His father was a white European immigrant who was able to find a living wage job because of his race, and these advantages helped him to save money and purchase stolen farmland for a relatively cheap price. People who were not of European descent were not granted these same opportunities, and so the wealth gap continued to grow. The ability to purchase land is paramount for families trying to accumulate wealth. The vast majority of United States citizens who have wealth today have either inherited money or property from previous generations who were given the opportunity to purchase land when it was affordable to the average white American. The land that my family settled on and was able to purchase in 1905 was also stolen land, this time from the Spokane tribe. Here's a brief background of the events that led up to the theft of the Spokane people's land. Prior to 1849, the interactions between the Spokane people and white settlers had been relatively peaceful. However, as time moved on, more and more settlers made their way west, encroaching onto the ancestral lands of the indigenous people. Shortly after the 1849 gold rush in California, thousands of prospectors began to spread out all along the west coast in search of gold and other precious metals. Many of them ended up on the lands of the Spokane people. Unfortunately for the Spokane people, and all indigenous people at the time, If a white man was harmed by indigenous people, regardless of what he may have done to to deserve the punishment, the United States government would send out troops to intervene, which usually resulted in the imprisonment or death of any indigenous people who were accused of being involved. Many of the settlers were aware of this protection they would receive, so they were inclined to act as if they owned the land the natives were living on. Their disrespectful and irresponsible behaviors led to many violent encounters with indigenous people who would ultimately be killed or imprisoned for defending their territory against the colonizers. Beginning around 1860, the Spokane people were steadily being persecuted for attempting to protect their ancestral lands. As more and more colonizers moved into the region, they were given two unjust options, either pack up and leave, their traditional homeland or stand and fight for it against the ever-growing United States Army, which had many men and weapons at its disposal. The Spokane people, along with neighboring tribes, were forced to relocate to designated reservation lands where their tribal identities were compromised. The indigenous people had their lands and natural resources they depended on stolen from them. Many of their sacred places were now being destroyed by the colonizers who began reshaping the land to satisfy their needs and desires. There was also an aggressive attempt by the colonizers to suppress the indigenous cultures and languages by stealing indigenous children from their parents and sending them to boarding schools where they were forcibly taught the colonizers' culture and language. They could be punished for speaking their own culture or for doing anything that was considered to be from their native culture. Some final thoughts. This project has been challenging for me on many levels. I've spent many hours researching and preparing for this final version. Honestly, I could probably spend many more hours trying to perfect it, but it is is now Friday, December 13th, and I have run out of time. Even though working on this project has been very stressful and exhausting, I'm glad I had to do it. I've never worked on a school project as emotionally impactful as this one. It has been tough to come to terms with the fact that my family and I have benefited from colonial and white supremacist social constructs. It is important for all of us to, to do assignments like these so that we can be personally motivated to combat social injustices. Given the current climate in the United States, it is now exceedingly important for us to take a critical look into our past to see the atrocities that have transpired so that we can hopefully avoid repeating them in the future. I hope as time goes on that we can heal our wounds of the past and the current festering ones of today. Only time will tell. I am grateful for the knowledge I have obtained throughout this course, as well as the intrinsic motivation I now have going forward as a future educator to combat social injustices. Thank you. Works cited. Developmental periods in the historic context, Euro American farms in Minnesota from 1820 to 1960, retrieved at www.dot.state.mn.us Retrieved on December 10th, 2019. Er Kimmerer, RW, 2013, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Milkweed Editions, loc.gov.com, retrieved December 9th, 2019, from www.loc.gov, mnhs.org, retrieved December 11th, 2019, from www.mnhs.org. Sensoy, Olslem, D'Angelo, Robin, 2012. Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concepts in Social social Justice Education, New York. Teachers College Press. USHistory.com, retrieved December 10th, 2019, from u s